We know that many of our readers like to share their copy of the Church Times with others. That may not be possible at the moment. As an alternative, we're offering a short-term discounted subscription. Just £1 a week for 10 weeks. That includes UK delivery and there's no obligation to renew. You can purchase the subscription for yourself or as a gift for someone else. You'd enjoy all of our usual subscriber benefits, the paper in the post each week, all the news at churchtimes.co.uk, access to the digital archive, the app for iPhone and iPad, and listening to this podcast. To purchase a subscription, go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash 10 hyphen weeks. Thank you. Thanks. It's, it's, uh, it's very good to be here and um, very encouraging to see all of you. Um, yes, I was uh, amazed when the blocks and invitations came out and they said, oh, we're going to talk about love. I thought, well, this is going to be exciting. How long have you got? Uh, uh, as Christine says, I want to just enjoy with you, share with you, open out some um, <clears throat> uh, a couple of poems by Dunn and, and one by Herbert. And, um, and then I'm going to, to read some of my own. Um, so, uh, of course, if you wanted to celebrate Dunn and love poetry, you, know, you could start anywhere, couldn't you? One of the... Well, uh, I was being told a story, I don't know if I'm allowed to repeat it or not, but uh, apparently um, when a, a certain uh, theologically uh, brilliant, uh, bearded and magnificently eyebrowed former Archbishop of Canterbury uh, was wooing his beloved, he did so by reciting Dunn. Um, you know, and uh, I can imagine that was pretty irresistible. Uh, so... Uh, Dunn has got such wonderful abrupt openings, hasn't he? Um, I once used one of them without context, just as an opening quote in a sermon. Maybe it's slightly more shocking from the pulpit than it was in whatever context Dunn first used it. One of my favourite opening lines of any poem, for God's sake hold your tongue and let me love. <laughs> but think of all the others, it could be rock songs, go and catch a falling star, get with child and mandrake, you know. Mark but this flea, and mark in this how little that which thou denyest me is. Um, I wonder by my troth what thou and I did till we loved. Were we not weaned till then, but sucked on country pleasures childish? I mean, just every one is astonishing. But the one I want to start off with um, uh, this afternoon is uh, the sun rising, that wonderful, busy old fool, unruly sun. This is, formally speaking, it's an obard. An obard is a whole sort of niche subgenre of love poetry, which, as the name suggests, is set just as the sun is about to rise. It's usually voiced for the lovers together, having had a glorious night and not wanting the night to end. But it's usually very decorous, very beautiful, and consists of some flattering hymn to the sun as the rising young Apollo saying, you two are full of youth and love, could you just spare us a few more minutes in bed before we... Um, you know, you'll understand. Uh, so Dunn takes that tradition of the Obard, um, uh, this, this, this hymn at dawn, you know, of the beloved and, and, and delighted lovers to the rising sun, and almost turns it on his head and has this wonderful, impudent, I mean, knowingly impudent, um, personification of the sun as an annoying old person sort of uh, doddering with his unwanted shadow across the uh, the glorious blisses of youth. 
I feel that my life as a chaplain in a Cambridge college has prepared me now to understand this poem. <laughs> I'm becoming more and more the busy old fool, the less and less. Um, so I'm, I'm appreciating the poem from another angle now. But it is one of the great poems, I think. Uh, and in fact, as I, I will share with you in a minute, done daringly returns to one of its great phrases in, in, a, in an Easter sermon. So here's the sun rising, just for the sheer fun of it. Busy old fool, unruly son, why dost thou thus through windows and through curtains call on us? Must to thy motions lover's seasons run? Saucy, pedantic wretch. Go chide late schoolboys and sour apprentices. Go tell court huntsmen that the king will ride. Call country ants to harvest offices. Love, all alike, no season knows, nor clime, nor hours, days, months, which are the rags of time. Thy beams so reverend and so strong, why shouldst thou think? I could eclipse and cloud them with a wink, but that I would not lose her sight so long. If her eyes have not blinded thine, look, and tomorrow, <coughs> late, tell me whether both the Indias of spice and mine be where thou left's them, or lie here with me. Ask for those kings whom thou sawest yesterday, and thou shalt hear all here in one bed lay. She's all states, and all princes, I. Nothing else is. Princes do but play us. Compared to this, all honours mimic, all wealth alchemy. Thou, son, art half as happy as we, in that the world's contracted thus. Thine age asks ease. And since thy duties be to warm the world, that's done in warming us. Shine here to us, and thou art everywhere. This bed thy centre is, these walls thy sphere. It's just magnificent, bravado, <laughs> you know. But it is, it's also in every respect true, in this sense that it, in the bliss of love, the lover and the beloved are the cosmos, they are everything. This bed thy centre is, these walls thy sphere. And I love the way he moves from telling the sun to get lost and don't even shine on us, to then saying, well, if you're going to come back, could you make it a bit later? I just love that. Tomorrow, late, you know. It's, you know, it's wonderful to be so enraptured in your love and lovemaking that you, you, don't, you don't just hang a, hang a do not disturb uh, door uh, sign on the outside of your door. You hang a do not disturb sign to the whole cosmos, you know. <laughs> just. But then eventually he comes, he, he goes from being impudent to that, you know, the last insult which the, old, the young can offer the old, which is being patronising. So, did you get that moment where he says, thine age asks ease. Oh, you poor old man, you can't really manage terribly many more steps. Well, I'll tell you what, since you've got to warm the world, we've done you a real favour. We've contracted the world down to this bed. So, all you need to do is just keep going around this bed. You'll be fine. You know? <laughs> um, but in the midst of that, you get, in all that fun and playfulness and youthful bravado, done gestures to what I think... Is a, is a classic moment of 
numinous spiritual awareness right in the midst of the lovemaking, a moment which I think also drew the attention of Eliot and many others. This moment in time and out of time, this moment in which an experience of time is so intense that time itself seems to fall away from the eternal quality of the experience. I mean, Shakespeare has it too, you know, when he says, you know, um, rough winds do shake the darling buds of May and summer's lease hath all too short a date. But thy eternal summer shall not fade. So here, at the end of that first verse, done, I think, in an immortal couplet, says, Love all alike no season knows, nor clime, nor hours, days, months, which are the rags of time. The rags of time is a, is a phrase of genius. Um, there's that sense in which the clarity and beauty and eternal meaning of a moment of love makes time itself no longer as it time falls away like so many rags from us and we shine resplendently somehow beyond it and um, there's a sense in which uh, almost the rags falling away from some glorious thing is must somehow call up or connect with that sense of the wrapping of the the clothing around both Lazarus first and then Jesus, and they unbind him and the clothing left. And in fact, an astonishing thing, I haven't brought the direct quotation, but years later, when you think he might have been trying to sort of be, might have been slightly embarrassed by his earlier reputation as the supreme erotic poet, um, when Dunn was dean of St. Paul's and was preaching regularly to packed houses, in a resurrection sermon, he compares the the graves clothing that Jesus has taken off and left folded aside to time itself. And he says in, in his resurrection and in our resurrection, time which has trammeled us will fall away like so many rags. And yet somehow that's there in the hours, days, months, which are the rags of time. So one of the great phrases, I think. So as is well known... Um, Dunn, I mean, I think Dunn was a man of religious sensibilities and erotic sensibilities all his life. I know, I'm not really um, that persuaded by this idea that there's some complete vault farce and that, you know, he's Jack Dunn, Jack the lad, you know, sailing with Sydney to Cadiz and then suddenly he's ordained and it, it ceases to be interesting. And, uh, and, you know, he does nothing but write pious poetry afterwards. I don't find that, just as I found... Uh, a numinous and spiritual charge in his erotic poetry. So I think there's quite often an erotic charge in his spiritual poetry. And in fact, he makes that very clear in one of his sermons. He has a wonderful sermon um, on the Song of Songs, um, or on a verse in the Song of Songs. He has this great phrase, he invents the phrase, sex. he says, when God takes, calls somebody to become a secretary of the Holy Ghost, um, uh, to become you know, somebody who's going to listen to what the Spirit says and give us an idea of what it is, i.e. when somebody becomes a writer in Holy Scripture. He says, he does not overwrite, he does not eliminate or eradicate all that that person has been already in God's providence, but rather lets that person bring all of that to the Holy Spirit. So he says, when David is called from the following of sheep and from being a shepherd to be to be the king and then also to write the psalms david writes a psalm which is the lord's my shepherd i shall not want and all of that is converted and brought to god 
So, he says, when Solomon is called to do his book of scripture, Solomon is a lover. Solomon is the one who's had many wives and paramours. So, of course, the Holy Spirit doesn't ask him to write about sheep. <laughs> you know, and actually, a moment when he tries to do so, it's a bit of a bit of a bathos. Your teeth are like a flock of goats. That doesn't work for me. Uh, but he says, Dunn says, you know, Solomon is called to write um, amorous songs and epithalamia, he says. You know. So you feel that Dunn already knows that to some degree the poetic vocation, yes, I mean, he endures bereavement. He goes through a real dark sense. He feels that God has taken away the, the love of his life. He knows he has to rediscover a new love and take all that erotic energy and somehow give it to Christ. And it is a movement. But, um, but it's not the case that he renounces his sensibilities, but rather that he allows them to be transfigured into a newer and a deeper love, in my view. Not that this is an easy process, and that's why I've given you the second poem on my handout, Batter My Heart, uh, Three-Person God. It's also because this is one of the great sonnets, and it's one of the sonnets from which I've learned a huge amount um, in my own uh, use of that form. Um, so you, you, you know this, but let's just enjoy it together. Just the sheer rush of these kinetic verbs in the beginning is amazing. So here we go. This is one of the, the so-called holy sonnets. Batter my heart, three-personed God, for you as yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend, that I may rise and stand or throw me and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. I, like an usurped town to another Jew, labor to admit you, but oh, to no end. Reason, your viceroy in me, should me should defend, but is captived and proves weak or untrue. Yet dearly I love you and would be loved fain, but am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie or break that knot again. Take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except thou ravish me. I mean, astonishing poem. Astonishing with the kind of liberties it takes, both with God and with language. Um, that opening, that batter my heart, three persons, God, for you as yet, but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend. Particularly the knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend. I don't know if you quite see the metaphor that's going on there. But the metaphor, talk about a low metaphor for a great God. The metaphor there is essentially that of a tinker, tinkering on pots and pans. It's the guy that calls at the door and says, you know... And usually calls at the door of the poor and says, look, don't, you know, I know you haven't got the money for a new pot or pan and that one's leaking or the handle's coming off. Let me just knock it about a bit and breathe on it and shine it up and I've got a little bit of a soldering iron here and we'll tinker on the pots and pans and we'll make them better, you know. You can't afford to go to the blacksmith and have the whole thing forged new. And he's saying to God, would you stop tinkering about with me, please? You and I both know that we can't, this is not, we're not going to be able to gloss this one over. This is not... You know, I've, and it's a, it's a confession, isn't it? That's what I've been doing. I've been tinkering with the outsides and trying to make do and mend with a life that needs to be completely remade. And I can't do this job. You're going to have to come in and do it for me, God. Do you notice that he's, just as he had no trouble 
bossing the sun around as a young man. He may be a converted and pious dean of St. Paul's, but he's taking a pretty similarly peremptory and imperative attitude to God, isn't he? He's quite good at... uh, There must have been something about Dunn who kind of, you know... You really wouldn't have wanted to be a waiter in a restaurant where Dunn was dining, you know? The constant summoning you over. Anyway, so that's the first idea that he needs completely reshaping and he wants God who started off as a tinker now to be a craftsman who practically takes the metal back to its beginning and makes it new. That I may rise and stand or throw me and then bend your force to break, blow, burn and make me, make me new. That's the first image. Do you tinker or do you remake? But it's God as a craftsman working on us and we as the thing that needs remaking saying, look, I'm giving you permission to go deep here. There's no point in just blowing on me a bit and hoping to shine me up. Then comes a second dramatic metaphor, and this is the metaphor of siege warfare. It's the idea that um, I'm being besieged by God, but God is the true owner. It's I've already been taken captive. Um, it's as though I, like an usurped town to another due, labor to admit you, but owe to no end. Isn't that an extraordinary idea? That the town whose whose population has probably been half slaughtered and half driven out of it by the invaders. The invaders have taken captive the, 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 the king's viceroy, reason, and are running this place as if it was their own. And it's as though the whole town is conscious and is saying, I want my own people back. I want my true king back. I want the right person to be in charge here, but I've been usurped. It's a very dramatic. In fact, I'm sure it was partly the metaphor that informed C.S. Lewis in the famous metaphor in Mere Christianity, when he, um, you know, he compared... uh, the, the coming of Christ to the sort of landing of the of the, the, the resistance in, in invaded France. He says, we're in enemy territory, that thing's been invaded, but the true king has landed and he's calling us to rally against the forces that are oppressing us. So that's the second metaphor. And it's almost as though Dunn realizes as he deploys this second metaphor, I'm like a, a usurped town, that he's evading the key thing. There was something almost personal in that batter my heart, three-person God. And it's almost as though he can't quite take the intimacy of it. So he interposes this, this larger political metaphor, but it won't do. And he comes back and finally returns to this metaphor in which of, and this time is the metaphor, is of forced marriage and elopement. And this is really powerful because in a sense, now he gets this, his own, he gets his own once rebel heart, he gets his own lovingly adventurous heart on the right side now. So he says this, yet, this is from the line yet, yet dearly I love you and would be loved fain, but am betrothed unto your enemy. Divorce me, untie, or break that knot again. Uh, That's fabulous, the idea that... um, in an age of arranged marriage, and although forced marriage was illegal in England, nevertheless, arranged marriages were the order of the day. And, you know, when people were completely economically dependent, how far could they break the will of the, the parental figure? Now, Dunn, of course, as you all know, knew this only too well, 
because he had fallen in love with Anne, whom he married, who was the daughter of his much more highly born patron, and the Earl of Leicester, I think. And um, they got married, and they knew her father would disapprove. So they got married secretly, but it was a legal marriage. And when, um, as soon as he found out, um, her father put Dunn in prison. And, um, and uh, you know, in the end, they were able to say, look, we're legally married, you can't stop this. But, you know, Dunn lost a good job. And Dunn wrote the famous letter uh, from prison, uh, appealing to his friends to go bail for them and help the two of them who were married to get... And, for, uh, and signed it on his wife's behalf as well, with the famous ending, John Dunn, and done, undone. Uh, uh, anyway, eventually, as you know, they, they got out, but they were then, you know, they were then practically living under house arrest, and, um, you know, it's really quite difficult. So he knew all about what it was like, and he'd managed to avoid, at least, she had managed to avoid a forced marriage to someone else, but it could very easily have happened. So now Dunn imagines himself as somebody betrothed to the wrong person, being forced, as it were, by the ways of the world to marry the enemy of his true beloved. And he's asking for a dramatic rescue elopement. But this time, the, the romantic figure who's going to come in and rescue him from this arranged marriage with the world is, in fact, Christ himself. It's an astonishingly bold poem. And um, just, you know, for those of you who like the sonnet form, and there's a huge amount to learn from this sonnet, but it's got a particularly good example which I use in the sonnets I want to read to you shortly. It's got a particularly good example of the use of the volta or turn. There are lots of ways of dividing 14, and Shakespeare often does it with um, three fours and a two. But um, another natural way is an eight and a six, and that's usually referred to as the octet and the sestet of a sonnet. And somebody, I think Don Patterson, has pointed out that it's actually almost like the golden section there, the, the eight-six proportion. There's something sort of right about the feel of it. And the, the break between the end of the octet and then the beginning of the sestet is normally called, because the sonnet was originally in Italian form, it was a sonetto, a little sound, little song. Um, that break, the Italian's called the volta, or the turn or jump. Um, and Dunn uses it particularly well here because the octet is all about the helplessness. You're not doing this right. It isn't happening. We're not applying the right force. It's a problem. It's a problem. Captived, weak, and then the worst submission. My reason is not only weak, it may be untrue. I may be deliberately reasoning against you. I may, you know, have lost even my capacity for that. And then comes the last six lines, the volta. And a classic opening word for a well-turned volta is yet. Nevertheless, in spite of everything, <laughs> I'm going to carry on. A new voice comes in. Finally, he admits, yet dearly I love you and would be loved fain. That's the cry of Rapunzel, as it were, trapped in the tower, saying, come on, rescue me. And isn't that astonishing for Dunn, who had, you know, it was like, frankly... He really had been, as a young man, Mr. Swagger in pumpkin pants. I mean, you know, he really, he really was the guy who liked to call the shots and be super active. And indeed, actually has that line, doesn't he? Modestly, my words, masculine, persuasive force. <laughs> and I'm sure he deployed that in many ways. However, 
Here he's actually admitting complete weakness. He's taking the passive role. He's actually taking the feminine role in the conventions of his society. I mean, and saying, I am, I am the person who needs rescuing. You need to come in and do this. And actually, I need to be passive to your love now. You need to ravish me. <laughs> it's astonishing, uh, the kind of imaginative leaps that are involved in that. So, um, little taste of Dunn. I owe Dunn a great deal. Um, I loved him as a poet from the get-go. Um, and when I did a, uh, my PhD on the sermons of John Dunn and Lancelot Andrews and how they influenced T.S. Eliot, I began to experience my own vocation to priesthood. And I realized that part of the reason why I hadn't focused this, why it hadn't been clear to me any earlier in my life that this might be my vocation was, I mean, sorry, I don't want all present company accepted, but at that time in the 80s, I kind of looked at the priesthood as I could visibly see it, and I just couldn't see anybody that looked or felt like me. I just felt like I clearly, you know, I don't even like cucumber sandwiches. I mean, uh, you know, uh, so I just couldn't see what that was. But I, when I encountered John Donne on the one hand and George Herbert on the other, I thought, oh. So I vaguely thought it was at least worth knocking on the door that if there was room in the Church of England for somebody like Dunn, there might possibly be a, a small niche for me somewhere. Um, so Dunn was helpful to me in that respect. Uh, but then I came on to, to Herbert and realized how much more, in a way, Herbert, I needed to learn from Herbert. I was already, it was too easy to channel my inner Dunn. Um, the, you know, it's like, let's not go there. But, but uh, what I needed to do was to awaken my inner Herbert. Um, and before I go on to some of my own poems, um, since this is on love, this whole week, you know, weekend, and I, I've mentioned the name of George Herbert, you, I can't help but read George Herbert's poem, Love Three, uh, with, which, with which, of course, the temple closes, and um, which I think Herbert probably knew was, of all his great poetry, his his masterpiece. And there are so many wonderful ways of reading this. But I read it to you now just by contrast with the Dunn. The Dunn is about the sheer, I mean, this poem is also about awkwardness and difficulty. It's also about crossing a threshold. It's also about letting in. But instead of this contrivance of great warfare and violent overthrow, it's almost a kind of delicate minuet of self-deprecation and courtesy, dancing courteously back and forth across the, you first, no, 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 you first, no, I insist, you know. And um, the kind of delicate um, uh, Jacobean courtesies he would have witnessed in the wonderful uh, uh, hospitality and intellectual salons, uh, Herbert, of his brilliant mother, uh, um, Magdalene Herbert, who, who, who entertained, among other people, very frequently, a certain John Donne, who in his bereavement, uh, I think had struck up a close, a passionate personal and spiritual friendship with Magdalene Herbert. And it was to her that he, Donne, delivered um, the poems that become La Corona, which have that very feminine perspective and the wonderful line to Mary, immensity cloistered in thy dear womb. All that went to Magdalene Herbert. And um, uh, she... Uh, she entertained Dunn and consoled him, and I think he, he learned with her a depth of gently reciprocal relationship that perhaps his masculine and persuasive force had previously excluded him from. But she was more than a match for him intellectually, which is saying something. 
But you can imagine how cool if you were a young wannabe poet, you know, trying to write. Do you think genial Uncle John Donne could come around again? Maybe I could show him my stuff, you know. And there was a friendship there, and there was a learning. Certainly, I think Herbert learned from, from Donne's uh, sermons. Though we've got a great Herbert expert in the room, so I've got to be very careful how I tread here. But, but um, so let me read this poem because it's simply gorgeous. Um, and say just a little bit about it when I read it. Um, love. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. Well, guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, ah, oh, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? What truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear. Well, then I shall serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. Everything about that is so good, including the words of one syllable in the final line. I think it's, we owe it to T.S. Eliot, but I think it's unfortunate that these poets just got categorized as metaphysical poets because the word metaphysical is so off-putting it's not even a real word anyway i mean it's named after aristotle's metaphysics right it's where we get the word metaphysics from but actually that book which aristotle didn't is i mean if you look if you read that book in greek which i, I did once in my youth um it's ta meta ta physikon, and that means the book after the physics so all it means is like I wrote a book called Physics and I wrote another book, I don't even know what to call it. We'll call it Termetatafusicon, you know. Anyway, these guys are called metaphysical poets because of their so-called metaphysical conceits. And it makes you feel like there must be something really complex and difficult which requires. But actually, you know, love bade me welcome. My soul drew back guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me. That, that's not difficult. Of course, it's rewarding. At some point later on, you go, quick-eyed love. I mean, quick is beautiful because it's quick to see. Um, quick meaning alive. And it, since this is a poem about loving courtesy, yeah, you can see that the idea that one of the things that makes a great host is that they notice, they're looking observantly. And if the guest looks uncomfortable, if there's something not quite right, they're quick to see it. And then they don't, then they draw near and they're sweetly questioning and they find out the way of putting that person completely at their ease. You get all that. And then maybe on the third reading you think, what is this epithet, quick-eyed love? And you think, ah, duh. Look at that sweet thing he's doing. Just like Dunn reversed the, the young Apollo god's son and called him busy old fool, now he's doing a much better thing. He's taking blind Cupid, taking the idea that, you know, the cliche that love is blind, and waking it up, doing something quite different and saying, no, no, true love is not blind. 
The first quality of love is that it's observant of the beloved. It gazes on the beloved and forgets about itself. And it seeks only the, the comfort and, and good feeling of the beloved. So you get quick-eyed love. So it's got a huge amount to offer you. But it doesn't hold back. I mean, T.S. Eliot famous... I mean, two T.S. Eliot things. One is quoted all the time and has done immense damage. And the other is never quoted and would do immense good. So the thing that's quoted and does immense damage is poetry... Is, is, T.S. Eliot saying that poetry must be difficult, which led to the unfortunate conclusion in post-Eliot British poetry that if it's difficult, it must be poetry, which is not at all the same thing. Um, but Eliot also said, true poetry communicates before it's understood. That's the real mark of poetry, is that it, you get something straight away, and then you have a lifetime. You've got to have something, but not everything. On a poem, I, I always try to say this to my students. I, I always say, you know, you really don't want to go out with a poem that gives you everything on the first date. You, you want a poem that's going to sneak up on you 20 years later and give you an unexpected kiss, you know. Uh, anyway, um, so then you get this beautiful back and forth where Herbert is completely saying, I, I, I'm not, I, I, you can't possibly mean me. If you knew who I was, you know, I wouldn't mean it's just always hanging back, and love is positively coming forward. Until in the end, love says, can we just have done with it? Sit down, shut up, eat, and receive my communion. Now, I think well, John Drury is not the only one, but, but he, in his book, Music at Midnight, he has a lovely reading of this poem, and talks not only about the courtesies of the secular household that are being, and uh, you know, the back and forth, and let please make yourself comfortable, please, please come and sit down, no, you can't serve, I really want to make, all of that. But he talks about how actually the whole pattern of the communion service in the Book of Common Prayer is here. That thing where you, love bids you welcome, so you come to church, right? And then you go, mm, really? You, you know, all hearts open, all desires known, you know, well, my, cleanse the thoughts of my heart, you know. Okay, fine, they're cleansed, you know. And then, then we come a bit further forward, and then we're about to get community. You go, oh, I'm not worthy so much, just gather up the crumbs under your table. And, you know, finally, take, eat. <laughs> and, you know, all of that is gently. But, of course, it's all beautifully done with love at the capital L. And so you can read it as a love poem. You can read it as a poem about communion. You can read it as knowing that God is love and those who live in love live in God and that the name of God is love. And, you know, surely this is, this is what lies behind, you know, that if you think about um, U2, just to take a more recent band, some of their best songs have, are where they've, instead of saying Christ or God, they've said love. You know, love rescue me, come forth and speak to me, raise me up and don't let me down. No man is my enemy, my own hands imprison me. Love, rescue me. Bono couldn't have written that with either, without either Dan or Herbert in the background. When love comes to town, you know, I'm going to catch that train. You know, I was, I was there when they crucified my Lord. I held the scabbard while the short soldier drew his sword. Um, I rolled the dice when they pierced his side. But I've seen love conquer the great divide when love comes to town. There's a lyric, again, where just by using the word love, you change the way you read the whole thing. So, um, now I'm going to turn, we are going to go from the sublime to the ridiculous, more or less. Um, I just thought it might be nice um, to uh, 
turn to this great commandment of love. I, I often celebrate the, uh, my sort of job with it. I'm, when I'm not being chaplain of Girton College, Cambridge, or trying to write poetry, I'm my wife's honorary assistant curate in the parishes of Linton and Castle Camps and Shudy Camps and all points southeast. And um, one of my main roles with her um, is to take the eight o'clock DCP communion, which I absolutely love. And I often use the, 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 rather than using the full 10 commandments in that, I, I use the, the two great commandments. So when I was writing a set of sonnets on the sayings of Jesus called Parable and Paradox, I thought, well, obviously I have to do the two, do the two great commandments. Two great commandments, two modest sonnets, job done. But of course, when I came to reflect on the two great commandments, I realized there's this extraordinary opening out by Christ of how one loves and the parts of one that loves all your heart and all your mind and all your strength and all your soul. And then the love your neighbor as yourself means use all of those for loving your neighbors as well. And it seemed to me that the very way of talking about heart and mind and soul and strength was was dealing with dimensions or aspects of our being that we downplay. I mean, instead of having this wonderfully multi-dimensional, multi-layered thing about being here and being human, we degrade ourselves by, 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 by making metaphors out of the latest buzzy, soon-to-be-redundant little thing that we've invented, right? So we'd no sooner invented clocks than we thought that God was a great clockmaker and the world was a watch running down, didn't we? You know, because as it says in the scripture, those who, who worship them shall be like unto them. Those who make them, you know, you make a dumb idol, you, be, you become as dumb as your idol. That's what, you know, the psalm says. So now we've made computers. So now we talk about our hardware and software and we talk about our memory banks and we do these odious things to, to, to people in prison and tell them we're reprogramming them. That's appalling language. It says nothing of heart or soul or mind or strength. So I realized when I wrote my sonnets, I needed to kind of return to those, um, to those categories. So, um, and here I, I availed myself of this natural division within the sonnet between an octet and a sestet. And I took these two great commandments. I mean, so love the Lord your, your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And the second is like, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no the greater commandment. And um, you rattle through that quite quickly in the eight o'clock communion. You've hardly get, at least you get to say confession after that, because it's a reasonable checklist. Um, but I wanted to slow that down and think about each of these things. So it seemed to me that what I could do was to spend the octet, the first eight lines of a sonnet, talking back. When I was, doing, when I was writing these sonnets, I realized I could channel my, channel my inner Doubting Thomas. I loved doubting, so-called Doubting Thomas because he asked the awkward questions. And big, in fact, in my sonnet, I call him courageous master of the awkward question. You know? um, and often it's his awkward question, like, we don't know where you're going, how can we know the way, that gets a great thing from Jesus, like, I am the way and the truth and the life. So I thought I'll be emboldened by Thomas to hear Jesus say this commandment to me and to turn back and say, really? Are you serious? Like, how is that even possible? Or I'm not sure, you know, just to just do that. So I was giving myself the octet to do that. And then I thought, well, Herbert had the boldness to imagine what love might say. So I, I, I generously gave 
the, the Lord and Savior of mankind, six lines to my eight, until the final sonnet, when I got severely slapped on the wrist and I was just getting warmed up for my full-on octet. And um, the Lord came in and said, no, shut up, sit down, sit and eat. I'm going to tell you something now. So the balance is broken. So uh, I'll read these through and, and maybe a bit of brief comment. Um, um, I don't know if you know the Yeats poem, uh, Circus Animals Desertion which is a great, I mean, it's a fabulous poem and it's becoming more and more attractive to me as I reach a certain age, you know, because by the time Yeats wrote it, he was a 60-year-old smiling public man, as he called himself. And he thinks it's, all. Oh, I've got to begin again. I've just got to begin again. And um, I don't even know where to start. And then the, the muse tells him, place your ladder where all ladders start in the foul rag and bone shop of the heart. That's <laughs> fantastic. So uh, a bit of Yeats got in here. So um, love the rock. Okay, with all your heart, with all my heart, you know my heart too well. It's Yeats's rag and bone shop. Will it do to start my loving in that little hell closed on itself and still excluding you? Uh, could I not offer you some empty room, some small apartment full of light and air, some portion of my life above the gloom, but not this pit of pride, not this despair? Only your heart will do. Let me begin to break the ground and plant a seed that grows up through the closing darkness of your sin till your unsightly roots Bring forth my rose, for I have learned to make the broken true, since my heart too was broken once for you. Um, so you can see also that Don and Herbert have licensed me to kind of speak back and push back and hear the reply. So, with all your soul, with all my soul, I scarcely know my soul. The age I live in doesn't think it's there. They cut me up where you would make me whole and think your promise only empty air. They say I'm hormones, chemical extremes, enzymes unwinding blindly, selfish genes, just empty gestures and repeated memes. With all my soul, I don't know what that means. Before the first life stirred, my spirit called you. I knew you when I wove you in the dark. I made you more than all the forms that mold you and kindled in your depth my hidden spark. So, let them say your soul is empty air. Love with your soul and you will know it's there. And... Um, that was quite an interesting experience for me, writing that bit of the sonnet. I've always felt that, in a sense, you haven't got a poem unless the poem pushes back at some point, you know. Um, if you already know and could summarise in, you know, a pithy sentence what your poem is going to be about, and that turns out to be what it is about, it's probably not a poem, it's probably just a memo. But um, if you're in, trying to take it one way and you think that's what it's going to be, and then the poem or the language itself wakes up and turns around. So... I was very preoccupied, as you could see in that octet, by um, Dawkins and the God delusion and the selfish gene and 
the whole reductive argument. And what I was hoping for from the logos in the reply was a knockdown series of logical arguments defeating material reductivism. And what I got was a message saying, just sod them, forget that, just try it. Love with your soul and you'll know your soul is there. It was actually taking me back to the commandment. It was saying, you know, Guy, stop intellectualizing and actually do a bit of practical loving. And in the act of spiritual loving, you'll find what spirit is, you know. But again, it wasn't quite what I was expecting. Um, let, you know, let them say, I'm not, I'm not even going to, uh, you know, I'm, it's not that there aren't people. I mean, there's a magnificent response to um, point by point taking Dawkins down on the, the, the you know, inanity and ignorance of almost all the so-called theology, theological points that he makes by Alistair McGrath, you know. And Alistair McGrath does it really well and can, uh, can do it much better than I can. And therefore, you know, the Lord comes back and gives you a slightly different push. So um, then with all your strength, with all my strength, what little strength I have is shadowed by the instruments of death. I crawl from dawn to dusk towards my grave, as frail and fleeting as my every breath. And all the strength of broken humankind seems only spent on pain and cruelty to magnify the malice of the mind and crush the poor in deeper poverty. And that is why you need to love with strength and offer all that little strength to me that you might let me mend it till at length we bear the weight together set you free as one who knows how all is born above and meets all malice in the strength of love. Um, there's a little allusion to Herbert's beautiful the way there and such a strength as men's in length. Uh, but again, I think where I was coming from when I wrote that was, it's a curious thing to love with strength. We tend, we're so, we're so used to saying and comforting ourselves in our failures by quoting the, the wonderful lines that his, his, uh, his strength is made, his love is, his love is made perfect in weakness. That we almost forget that, you know, there is such a thing as strong loving and sometimes you have to be strong in love and you have to take what little strength you've got and put it at love's disposal. And my, my problem here is that strength taken it in, in, in the sense of all the powers and capacities of humankind See, it seemed to me so overwhelmingly deployed by the forces of evil and malice. So, you know, so much good science just gets taken over by the military-industrial complex and sort of turned into crushing things and weapons of war. So many things that ought to ameliorate are used to crush. Um, and uh, then I also, I mean, needless to say, I was feeling, in fact, I, I can remember, I wrote this sonnet, um, I got the bit between my teeth on these sonnets and I was going on them, but I was on a train journey and I actually had um, I, I had a temperature, I was starting to sicken and I was just doing too much. And um, I suddenly thought, oh, I've got a way into the strength sonnet. And I was sitting on a railway carriage, you know, with uh, a lot of sort of people listening to loud music and going tisk, tisk, tisk on their things and two girls having a, a very unpleasant argument in the cabbage. But I just knew I could do this, I was writing it. But I was so tired. So this sense, you know, what little strength I have is shadowed, uh, just spent, just exhausted. 
And then uh, the line from Hamlet, you know, you know, what should what should should such fellows as I do crawling between heaven and earth? That sense of the the kind of diminishment. But of course, that that was the right way and the right time to write the sonnet, because it's the challenge to love with strength can do nothing but make you aware of your own weakness. <laughs> so again, the reply comes. The, the reply is, offer me what little strength you have, you know, and this mend and length, which I borrowed from Herbert. And the bear the weight together, um, that comes out of a meditation, which again is a repeated phrase in the Book of Common Prayer, Eucharist. Um, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And you're supposed to think about that as a priest when you put on the stole because it's meant to be the yoke and you think about a yoke you know like you're carrying two buckets and you know maybe it's easier to carry two buckets are easier carried than one as Seamus Heaney says in one of his poems but um, I thought well that doesn't you know thinking about it as a yoke doesn't make it any lighter <laughs> um, but thinking about it I suddenly realized I had misunderstood the yoke that in a sense it's like yoking two oxen together it's more that Christ's shoulders are getting under and inside your shoulders. And to take my yoke upon you, no, 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 don't take your yoke upon you, take my yoke upon you, that actually there's some sense in which whatever strength you've got allows you to stand upright in the face of this task. But actually, if you're in Christ, if you're in Christ, the shoulders on whom it falls are bigger than your shoulders. There's a real sense in which as long as it's his yoke, he's kind of carrying it as well. And I, I need to get that in, I wanted to get that in some sense, in that sense of mend and length. And um, we bear the weight together, set you free, as one who knows how all is born above and meets all malice in the strength of love. And that is true, I think, in that cast your care upon him, for he cares for you. If one is to believe that in some sense on the cross, Christ is a kind of like a new atlas, is kind of bearing the weight of the world, then you can genuinely give it to him and see almost the cross itself as, as the oak. And it is always born, but he's always bearing the thing for you that you've chosen to bear for yourself. So you can stop bearing it for yourself and, and, and let him carry it um, uh, in that sense of... Uh, or being, being born above. Um, I love that thing in Lo uh, Love's Endeavour, Love's Expense, about the arms that aching spent the world sustain. And uh, there's a wonderful moment in um, Seamus Heaney's poem, Westering, at the end of uh, Wintering Out, which is it's called Westering because it's, it's, a, it's a riff on Dunn's Good Friday, 1613, riding westwards. And at the end, of the, he's about, about driving west through, through Ireland on Good Friday with everything closed on his way to California. And uh, the last image, he's looking at this map of the moon and then he says, I imagine 6,000 miles away or six, uh, untroubled dust, Christ weighing with his hands. It's a fantastic line. But the sense that the body on the cross is weigh is weighing from the nails through the hands, but that he is weighing, you know, holding in assessment and holding up the world. Um, so then, um, 
went on to the fourth one with all your mind. Um, and again, I wanted to... One of the things that kept me from Christianity for quite a long time when I was an undergraduate, when so much of the literature I loved and the poets I loved were all Christian and I was... One of the things that kept me from it was the, the fear that it meant closing my mind, that it meant not having any more questions, that it meant on having, you know, ticked a box and agreed to everything and arriving at a sort of stasis. And I was immensely helped uh, in this respect by Augustine and by, by Dante. Augustine saying, credo ut, ut intelligam, I believe, I believe in order to understand, not in order to finish understanding. <laughs> And of course, this great sense of the ascent, of, and particularly, you know, in the Paradiso, when he gets into the sphere of the sun, and he meets Boethius, whom I was reading and loving, and the other, and they're all involved in this fantastic sort of philosophical circle dance, all whirling round each other, delighting in, as it were, the joy of, of fulfilled and fulfilling intellectual inquiry, and and um, and then of course Lewis going further up and further in, so, so. Um, that helped me eventually, but it, uh, it took a while. So here's with all your mind. With all my mind, with all my open questions, my restless questing after hidden truth, with all my science, all my suppositions, my search for certainty, my lust for proof, with all my mind, its logic and obsession, its wordless reveries, its language games, its reason and its deep imaginations, its mysteries, its riddles and its dreams. With all your mind, with every gift I gave you, for every drop of truth is drawn from me, not that your mind itself will ever save you, but that it lives within my mystery. Ask and be answered. Seek and you will find. I am the life of every loving mind. So that, that sense, I think Tom Wright's written about this recently, that there are certain things you can only know by loving. And that love and knowledge go together in a certain way and we've split them off and that's why our knowledge is so limited. Um, Steve Bell's written a great song about that, having read uh, Tom Wright, um, which, which is called, Wouldn't You Love to Know? <laughs> and he's actually saying there's certain things you can't know unless you love. So, uh, and then I thought, oh, I'm on the home stretch now. I've only got, you know, uh, uh, and I was relieved to discover that I could, um, I could do the neighbor one in one sonnet. Well, I'd originally put, I thought, oh, like, do I do now four more sonnets based on all of these things, the love and the, the strength and the, and, the, and the mind and the uh, soul and the heart and everything for the neighbor. Um, so I was kind of warming up for that. But uh, then, as I say, I kind of got cut off in my prime uh, and made to sort of uh, uh, sit. So, um, and in fact, the, the interjection from, from love in this, when he says, I'll be the judge of that, uh, is again a, a riff on Herbert because, um, you know, what child is the balance thine? Thine the poison measure? You know, if I choose to call, you know, finger not my treasure, that's a fantastic line in which Jesus rebukes Herbert for thinking he can come to a premature judgment about the worth or value. You know, let me, let me be the judge of that. So that's how Jesus jumps in at this point. So, your neighbor is yourself. My neighbor is myself. 
I cannot learn to love myself at all. I look away. The dark glass only shames me, and I burn at what should never see the light of day. I'll be the judge of that. For in my light, judgment and healing meet you equally. The self you loathe is precious in my sight, and I will have you love it into me. You and your neighbor, both must be made whole. Her heart's as dark and needy as your own, so you must love her in her hidden soul, the very soul she's trying to disown. Love her as you are loved, and you will find love is your heart, your soul, your strength, your mind. So again, it turns just back to the commandment to do the loving. But I was quite shocked by the line, I'll be the judge of that, when that came. I thought, what? <laughs> Where did that come from? Um, but in a way, that's one of the most, you know, I love that line of Paul's, where he's talking about judgment and, do not, you know, uh, he says, I, he's telling whoever he's writing to that he's not judging them. And then he says, like as a throwaway line, he says, I judge not even myself. A fantastic line. And goes, of course, with do not judge and you will not be judged. One of the least quoted sayings of Jesus. So um, I, I, I wanted to read those, as it were, in the context of um, the earlier poems I read just to get, not because I'm putting myself in that league, but simply because those earlier poems seemed to me, showed to me a license, a possibility of pushback, a possibility of colloquy and conversation, that the freedom to say, it's not working for me, and then to hear the reply. And that seemed to me a freedom I don't see a lot of in some contemporary churches. I don't see that freedom to push back and to wrestle and all of those things that are in this poetry, and I think that needs to be restored. I'm sorry I've probably gone on longer than I should have done, um, but I hope that was helpful. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode. Thank you.